Good evening. It is good to see each of you this evening. We have several visitors from St. Louis. We're thankful to have you with us. And for each visitor, we're thankful that you're here. If you will be, open your Bibles to Acts, the second chapter again tonight. Uh, we will not have slides as we go through our lesson. Uh, so be sure and take a Bible and let's follow along and study together. Uh, uh, please, if you will, allow me to make a couple of announcements. Uh, one that was uh, submitted uh, since uh, service has begun. Dennis Buchanan's cousin, Danny Luffman, has passed away in his arrangements or Woodlawn Funeral Home in Nashville. The visitation will be Monday and Tuesday from 10 till 8 p.m., Wednesday from 10 a.m. to 12.30 in a graveside service at 12.30. Let's be sure and remember uh, Dennis and his family in our prayers and uh, support them in every way that we can. I understand that the Young at Heart Banquet was just a tremendous time last night. Definitely, uh, we want to give honor to those who are due honor and we have some wonderful, wonderful Young at Heart folks here at Mount Juliet, and we are thankful for you. Uh, what a wonderful example you set for us. What a wonderful uh, opportunity we have in the Lord's family to share uh, in various ages in fellowship together, and truly, that is a tremendous blessing. Uh, I mentioned to you this morning the, the mission trip, and one of the things that I just want to mention to you briefly tonight is we all need to uh, be thankful and express our gratitude to Buddy Pickler and to God for Buddy Pickler. What a tremendous leader. So many hours and hours before uh, the team ever leaves the ground uh, in prepping for that particular trip each year. And then so much effort and energy is given then uh, that week. And then when we come home again, just to put everything back in place and follow up on the work that is there. And uh, there are many that give a lot to make that a reality. Uh, but especially I wanted to mention to you, Buddy Pickler, and be sure and say a word of thanksgiving to him and on his behalf uh, to God. All of us doing our, our uh, fulfilling our place is what we want to do. Find your ability, find your opportunity to serve, and let's all get involved. Do keep in mind, as already mentioned, the SOS. It's not too late to complete that. Find your place. Together we can serve the Lord effectively. Without you, we're somewhat handicapped. Let's make sure that we do not hinder the work of the Lord. This evening, we want to put a conclusion on this morning's lesson. If there was any way that... Uh, you could have the mind of Satan, and I hope you can. I hope you don't even want that. But to make a point, if you were going to have the mind of Satan, for those that are in the depths of the world, you might think of ways to hold them into the depths of the world. But let me ask you something. If you were Satan, and what you really wanted to do was also to be able to hold those away from God that wanted to find God, is that stated clearly enough? Do you see the angle here? If you were Satan, what would you do to try to hold back the individuals from finding God? The ones that had a heart to say, I want to serve God. I want to be faithful to God. I want to be religious. I want to be saved. What would you do if you were Satan? I believe one of the most clever tricks Satan has in his arsenal is to put out several doctrines 
about salvation. That actually are not God's plan of salvation. How convenient it is for Satan to convince good religious people that they're saved. They continue to do their work in their church. They continue to be faithful in their church. They're faithful in their doctrine. They're sincere oftentimes. But the reality is they've never obeyed that form of doctrine, Romans 6 and 17. Friends, as stated this morning, I hope you realize this is not any kind of endeavor to make make one feel like they've won an argument over another. This is about all of us making sure that we're saved. Because if we take the religious community in general and speak of it in that sense, there are more things taught about salvation that are not found in the Bible than the form of doctrine that is found in the Bible. As a matter of fact, this morning, this was brought to us here in this particular church. And I don't bring this out to put down an individual that would have brought this. But this was brought and given to us this morning. It's a brochure that's several pages uh, in length. And you turn toward the back and it has prayer of salvation. Now this wasn't brought after the service this morning. This was brought to share with us this morning. Can you find in the new covenant the prayer of salvation? Better known in the religious community as the sinner's prayer? Isn't it striking that the very way that the world, the religious community, often teaches the plan of salvation is not found in the Scriptures? How is it that Satan has blinded us to the reality of what is so important? If we cannot begin right, it is impossible for us to finish right. Here's what this prayer says. We trust you've been blessed by this devotional. We invite you to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life by praying thus. That's how you're going to make Jesus the Lord of your life. You're going to pray. Read through the book of Acts and find out if any individual made Jesus their Lord by saying a prayer. And at the end of that prayer, they were saved. How can it be that Acts clearly gives us conversion story after conversion story after conversion story? Well, here's how some scriptures are misused. I hope you have your Bibles open to Acts 2 and 21. And if you do, be glancing at that as I read this to you. This continues. Oh, Lord God, I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Your word says, and here's a quote from Acts 2 and 21. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I ask Jesus to come into my heart to be the Lord of my life. I receive eternal life into my spirit. And according to Romans 10 and 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I declare that I am saved. I am born again. I'm a child of God. I now have Christ dwelling in me. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. 1 John 4 and 4. I now walk in the consciousness of my new life in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And then at the end is a summary. Congratulations. You're now a child of God. Who says? Who says an individual that prays that prayer is a child of God? 
Did Christ say that in His covenant? Well, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Do you realize that the religious community has held that phrase almost hostage? If you and I use that phrase today, most people think we're referring to a prayer. When we read in the scriptures, does calling on the name of the Lord refer to a prayer? Well, let's look at a few times that it's used in the book of Acts and see if the way it's taught here is the way it's taught here. You see, in Acts, the second chapter is a perfect place to begin because that's the beginning of the church. The day the church first began, who was present? The ones that were guilty of crucifying Jesus Christ of Nazareth because they did not think that He was the Christ. They did not think He was the Messiah, the glorified one. So they crucified Him. So now Peter stands along with the other 11 in verse 14 and he introduces to them by prophecy who the Savior is. And that's where we come at the end of this prophecy in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They don't know who the name of the Lord is. So in 22, he tells them who it is. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. But notice what God did. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be held by it. Then he gives some prophecy from David. Now he really has their attention, but Peter is really going to drive his point home all the way to their heart being pricked. Notice how he closes this out in 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. We use those terms so often we may not realize at first glance what he's saying here. He's saying, I want your attention, Israel. They're gathered there. Just a few uh, weeks ago, they had crucified Jesus. Israel's listening. He says, I just want to remind you now, this is the summary of this sermon. You took the Jesus that God had glorified, lifted up to, uh, he was the Messiah, and you're the one that put him to death. God's the one that raised him from the dead. And you know the result of that. The result of that in 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Pray this prayer. That's what should be right there. They were told, if you want to be saved, call on the name of the Lord. He convicted them of sin. They were pricked in their heart. They did not know how to call on the name of the Lord. And so they asked, what shall we do? He didn't say, repeat this prayer after me. He didn't refer to a prayer at all. Instead, he said, repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now notice in 39 for this promise is to you, to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. 
Now, he talks about more that he preached in 40, but notice this in 41. Then those who gladly received his word said this prayer. It didn't say that. But according to what is the most popular teaching in the religious community today of a sinner's prayer, Acts gets it wrong over and over and over. Or either Acts gets it right and it's wrong in the publications and it's wrong in the sermons and it's wrong in the doctrine over and over and over. We see individuals being told what to do. We see them doing it, but we don't ever see someone praying for their salvation. We must start being the voice of righteousness. It breaks my heart how many individuals that are striving to follow God and Satan has reeled them in and now they are convinced that they're saved and they have never obeyed the form of doctrine. When we were in El Salvador last week, we, on our last day or next to last day, went into a bookstore and one of the best known preachers in the United States had his books translated in Spanish and it was there on the best-selling list and it broke my heart because he ends every service that he preaches by telling folks that God will save them if they say a prayer that does not exist in the Scriptures. Friends, tonight I'm not just wanting you and I to see what the Scripture says. I'm wanting you and I to have broken hearts that says we have to do something about this. We have allowed our religious communities to be overtaken to the point that folks do not know the truth about salvation. And I have to ask you and I not to be sarcastic, but to be blunt. Do we even care? When's the last time you've talked with someone about the fact that the sinner's prayer doesn't exist? Do we care? If a child was playing in the middle of the street, would you care? If a soul is dangling in the balances because they've been mistaught, would we care? Look again at Acts the 22nd chapter. And let's see again, calling on the name of the Lord. In Acts the 22nd chapter, we have Paul giving a description of the time that he became a Christian back in Acts the 9th chapter. And here he tells us that once he was told to go to Damascus and wait, and it would be told him what he must do. Keep in mind, Saul was not saved on the road to Damascus. He was told to go to Damascus and wait, and it would be told him what he must do. And when Ananias arrived to him in verse 16, Ananias said, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins Here it is, calling on the name of the Lord. Do you think there that Ananias was saying, just say the sinner's prayer? In Acts, that was never calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord was acting by the Lord's authority. And so in Acts 2, they didn't know what the Lord's authority was. And he says, I can tell you how to call on the name of the Lord. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Remember this morning, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. God is here. We're here. Sin separates us. The only way to be saved is to have that sin forgiven. What 
point in time does the Lord remiss sins? The point in time is in baptism. Who is a candidate to be baptized? It's someone who loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's someone who is a believer that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's someone who's ready to repent, turn from sin into God and do the works that prove repentance. It's someone who is ready to confess they're not ashamed. They are ready to take a stand for Jesus And they will confess before men that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is an individual that is ready to be baptized into Christ. Notice that. That is the only entrance point into Christ. You never read of praying into Christ. You never read of believing into Christ, confessing into Christ, repenting into Christ. Galatians 3 and 27, Romans 6 and 3 both clearly state we are baptized into Christ. Keep in mind the church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. So picture this head in this body and 1 Corinthians the 12th chapter teaches us that we are baptized into his body. Another passage, three passages tells us how to get into Christ. Never is a prayer referred to. But yet that is the most frequent way salvation is taught today. When Christ was preached in the book of Acts, and if you will, just turn back with me and, and let's scan a few things together. And, and then let's look quickly at three passages. I'm in Acts, the second chapter. And we see that Jesus Christ was preached as we already looked in just a few moments ago in Acts 2 and verse 21. Uh, we have to be, call on the name of the Lord. We have to find out who that Lord is in 22. It was Jesus of Nazareth. And then when Jesus was preached, the command was when asked, what shall we do was to be baptized. And then in 41, this is important. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. Look with me, if you will, to Acts the 8th chapter. Acts the 8th chapter, at the beginning, beginning about verse 4, we see that Philip goes into Samaria. Now, when he went into Samaria in verse 5, he preached Christ. What happened when individuals preached Christ? What was the response? Look at verse 12. But when they believed... Now, see, now we're back to belief. You know, sometimes people will say, well, all we have to do is believe. Well, all we have to do is believe when belief has a response to it. You know, in James, the second chapter, he teaches us that the demons believe and they tremble because they do not have a response to the Lord's belief. And so if we're going to speak of an active, a full submissive belief, that's proper. But if we're going to talk about a belief that's simply intellectual, that's not the righteous belief that God wants. He wants an intellectual belief that will put us into action. So notice this in 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the things, and it's always a dual purpose concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women said the sinner's prayer. Both men and women said the prayer of salvation. No, both men and women were baptized. Look at the end of Acts 8. The end of Acts 8, the eunuch is approached by Philip. The Spirit sent Philip. He was reading from Isaiah. He began in 35. Philip opened his mouth and beginning to this scripture, preached Jesus to them. What was the result? Now, again, and I'm just doing this to drive it home. I'm not trying to be sarcastic or, or facetious, but notice... Why didn't the scripture say here when he preached Jesus, why doesn't the next verse read? Now, as they went down the road, they came to a wide place and they pulled the chariot off to the side and they paused for a sinner's prayer. 
Why doesn't it say that if we're told over and over and over by religious people, you can be saved by saying this prayer. And we go to the scriptures and we see every conversion and it's not even close. You can't even say, well, it implies it. Do you see the scam that Satan has brought into our world today? What are we going to do about it? Instead, we see in verse 36, now when they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Isn't that interesting? The very verse right before that just said he preached Christ. What was the result? He's looking for a place to be baptized. Acts 2, they preached Christ. What was the result? 3,000 souls were baptized. Acts 8, Philip went to Samaria. He preached the kingdom of heaven in Christ. And what was the result? Men and women were baptized. Look, if you will, in Acts, the 10th chapter, as Peter goes into Cornelius' household. And as he goes in, in verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. So he preached that Jesus is the Lord of all. And you know what the answer is going to be when I say, what was the response? In 48, he commanded them to be baptized, not a sinner's prayer, be baptized in the name of our Lord. Then they ask him to stay a few days. Notice as we go deeper in Acts the 16th chapter. In Acts the 16th chapter, we have toward the end of that chapter, the Philippian jailer. And at midnight, Paul and Silas were there praying, but then the earthquake breaks them out of their prison. The prisoners are free, but yet the prison guard believes that he should probably go ahead and kill himself because he would probably have been executed anyway. They stop him from that. The end of 28, do yourself no harm. He falls down before them and he asks this question in 30, sirs, what must I do to be saved? All you need to do is believe because Jesus Christ did it all for you on the cross. All you need to do is call on the name of the Lord and say this prayer. Repeat after me. What do you think he's going to say? We've already seen enough in Acts to know that when Jesus was preached, what happened? You see, this jailer was not religious. He did not know Jesus. And so we see here in 31, they said... Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. So is that a belief that's purely intellectual? All he has to do is come to the conclusion, Jesus is the Son of God and now I'm saved? Or is it a belief that requires submission to God's will? Well, let's read on and see which one it was. The Scriptures lets us know that. 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. We see a sign of repentance there. You see, he was sorry that he had had a part in persecuting these Christians. And so he washes their stripes almost as a sign of repentance, and then immediately he is baptized. Notice the conclusion. Notice the conclusion in 34. Now, when he had brought them into his house and he set food before them, he rejoiced. The rejoicing always comes after the baptism because salvation takes place in baptism. But notice this, having believed in God with all of his household. You didn't overlook that word, did you? What did he do? 
he rejoiced because he had believed in God. Notice it didn't say there, he rejoiced because he'd been baptized. Because the belief that's being referred to is a belief that's submissive to the full will of God. You see, when we read in the New Covenant, individuals being saved because they believed, it's talking about a full submission to the will of God. Individuals that fully submit their life by hearing and repenting and confessing and being baptized, that belief system, that faith system is submitted to and they rejoice and they're saved. Friends, when we look in the scriptures, we see three passages and we're going to hit on these quickly and lightly, but I hope that it gives great insight to us to see with clarity. Romans the sixth chapter, if you will. Let's go to three just back to back. Romans the sixth chapter. You have questions about grace? They had questions about grace. The truth is they had problems with grace. Verse one and two, what shall we say then? Romans six, one and two, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. King James would say, God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Notice here, They had a problem with believing that if grace was in their life, that gave them a license to sin. And they believed that the more they sinned, the more the grace of God abounded because after all, they'd been saved. Notice how he brings up the idea that, hey, if you truly understood what you did to be saved, it would give you a better understanding of grace. See that in verse 2? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? In other words, he's saying, you remember, you went through this when you were saved. You crucified, Romans 6 and verse 6, you crucified the old man of sin. So now why do you think you can come over here and now start reliving that life of sin that over here, keep in mind, crucifixion wasn't execution, it's put to death. You put to death that type of life. Now, we could have a quick review. How did Jesus die? He died on a cross. Put that in your mind right here. Did he stay on that cross? No, he was buried. He went to a grave for three days. Did he stay in the grave? No, he was resurrected from that grave. God resurrected him from the grave. Now, what do we do? According to Romans 6 and verse 6, notice this. And and notice how the word knowing is in here. He's trying to clear up their understanding. He's saying, you know this, just think about it. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That's repentance. That's where we decide to put to death that old man of sin. Now let's go up to verse 3 and let's see this burial. Or do you not know? We're back to that word knowing again. You should know it. You did it before. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? You take that one that is spiritually dead. Sin is separating this individual from God. They're spiritually dead and you bury the dead. Bury them in baptism just as Christ was buried And notice verse 4, we see that it's a burial. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. But now notice this resurrection, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, uh, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. He's saying, you have a misunderstanding of the grace? If you better understand repentance and baptism and the resurrection that comes from that, you're going to have a better idea of what grace really is all about. What happens here? 
We see clearly from this teaching that this individual is spiritually dead before they enter into their burial. And we see that once they come out of their burial, that they are alive spiritually. In other words, as Acts 2 and 38 says, their sins are remiss. As Acts 22 and 16 says, their sins are washed away. Here, one becomes alive after they pass through the waters of baptism. Friends, when individuals say that it's just an act of obedience, they are missing the key teachings of Scripture. Let's see a second. Let's go to Colossians, the second chapter. Colossians, the second chapter, the only time in the Scriptures that circumcision is an illustration of baptism. In Colossians, the second chapter, in verse 11, talking about Christ when it says, in Him, in Christ, and three times a form of the word circumcised is going to be used in one verse. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Notice that phrase, made without hands. But putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's a comma. Let's pause there for just a moment. What is this circumcision? Well, it's a circumcision of Christ. In other words, it's not our circumcision. You and I didn't give the authority for this. We didn't come up with this. This is Jesus Christ's circumcision. This isn't the circumcision that God the Father gave to Moses back in Genesis as a sign of the covenant. This is a circumcision that is of Christ. Now, you remember back in the Old Testament, circumcision was a removing of the foreskin that took place by the hands of men performing this surgery. And now he says Christ's surgery, Christ's circumcision is going to take place. Look again there in the middle of verse 11. He says, this circumcision is made without hands. One of the most powerful phrases in this passage here that we're reading. Friends, the scriptures is teaching us here that this water right here is a surgery, an operating place for Jesus Christ. He says, when you go into that water, there'll be a surgery. There'll be a circumcision that takes place that no man's hands can perform it. What you and I see is we see a body being buried underneath the water. And what takes place spiritually underneath that water is that the Lord cuts away the guilt of the sins of the flesh from that individual so that when they rise, now they are spiritually alive. There has been a resurrection The man or woman entered in dead, spiritually separated from God. Their sins, the guilt was cut away and now they arise alive in Christ. Now to make sure that we're real clear, notice at the end of 11, that was a comma. As he talks three times about this circumcision, he makes it real clear what he's talking about in 12. This circumcision is this. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through the faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus Christ from a literal grave and gave him life again. He takes you and I into a spiritual grave. We are spiritually dead and he raises us to be literally spiritually alive again. Look with me if we will to 1 Peter the 3rd chapter and we'll bring this to a close. 1 Peter the 3rd chapter. He's talking in verse 18 about the suffering that Jesus Christ went through. And then he says in 20, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. 
baptism. Now the, the phrase in parentheses here, not the removing of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience to or toward God. Now how does this take place? That's the end of the parentheses. So notice it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, I'm assuming we're all on the same page here, but let's state it real clearly to make sure you realize there would be no baptism for you and I if there were no resurrected Lord. If God has the power to put life back into Jesus Christ, because remember, He died paying the price for all of our sin. So the one who physically died as the guilt offering for our sins, God was able to bring back to life Now he can take you and I in the guilt of our sins as we are buried in the water and because or through the resurrection of Jesus, we have proof that we too can live. What is it to us? Not only in Romans 6 does it help us to understand grace. Not only in Colossians 2 do we see that there's literally a spiritual surgery that takes place. But here in 1 Peter 3, he says, listen, it'll give you a good conscience. You want to pillow your head tonight and say, I've done God's will. I'm right with my Father. This water is not about a physical bath is what 1 Peter 3 and 21 is teaching. It's about you and I being able to say, I've submitted my life to the Almighty God. I've done what He has asked me to do. As Marshall Keeble used to say, it's the power is not in the water. The power is in the one who said, get in the water. And that's what the the phrase in parentheses is, is all about there. There's nothing magical or powerful about this water. The power is being able to say, there is a point in time. There is a place in time that the Lord says, I'll forgive a soul. When is it, Lord? Whenever that soul becomes a believer that's willing to repent of sins and confess before others in immersion, I'll forgive him at that point. And when he or she rises from that water, they're saved. They are alive spiritually. Friends, That's something we all need. That's something a prayer can't bring us. This evening, are you saved? Everything we've studied has been straight from the Scriptures. It's not a teaching of man because man can't save you because man is not a Savior. But Jesus Christ is a Savior, the only Savior. And He has clearly taught us what we need to do to submit our life to receive His grace to have the forgiveness of sins. I hope we all leave here tonight saved. I hope we all leave here tonight convicted that we need to be a voice for God. There's too many good people that Satan has blinded. And somebody needs to stand up and say a word for the Lord. Not because we want to argue and not because we want to debate, but literally because we love their soul and we love our Lord.
Tonight, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.